Good morning, my name is, uh, my name is also Johnny. We're going to look at Revelation 15 and 16 together. Lord, we, uh, we come to you and pray uh, that you would indeed still our hearts and our minds. Uh, Lord, that I may declare the truth of your word and we may listen and receive the truth of your word and respond as you have intended us to in repentance and faith. Amen. So I want to start by thinking about the idea of justice. And uh, the thing about justice, or one of the things about it, is it's really quite frustrating, because we all have this very clear sense of it, and we have this expectation of it that's just, I think, built into our very being as humans, and yet so often it is not satisfied, is it? Justice in the here and now is never done fully or completely. And it ranges from a whole load of things, from from being really quite annoying and, quite frankly, a right pain in the ass when, say, a big and a powerful business takes your money, as they had from someone in our church this week, and you can't get it back, and there's nothing you can do about it, and you just feel like, where's the justice in that? Or as I've seen time and time again, that businesses exploit and prey on the most vulnerable customers and consumers around. You see it all around this community. Now, they're, they're, they're bad enough, but, but maybe not quite as serious as situations like we heard about this week in the news. Five teens who were convicted this week of the murder of Keon Lincoln in our city, the 14-year-old boy, 15-year-old boy who was killed earlier this year. And yet you think when you hear about that, whatever time they serve under our justice system, it will not answer the deep grief and the longings of that boy's mum, will it? And his family, who have lost a son forevermore. I read uh, a quote of um, Jeremy Everard, the, um, the father of Sarah Everard, who, just a tragic situation that happened to her this year. And he said to the murder of, uh, murderer of, her, of his daughter, all my family want is Sarah back with us. No punishment that you receive will ever compare. It will not compare to the pain and the torture that you have inflicted on us. Because it just can't. It just can't, can it? Those are just a handful, just a few examples of injustice in the world. And when you think about it, if you just multiply that through history and across the world, it's just crushing, isn't it? The injustice of the world. And we cry out for all of the wrongs to be righted and, all, uh, and it all to be made good. Now listen, one thing that Revelation does for us is it promises that that cry will be answered in the end. There is a God who will bring full and final justice in the world in the end. Now that comes through what is known as God's wrath. That is his righteous anger against all that is wrong, which is what, a little bit of what we feel when we cry out against injustice. Wrath, when it comes to God, is the intersection of perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom and perfect purity. When you've got perfect knowledge, wisdom and purity all together, then what you get is the wrath of God, what no earthly court or judge can ever bring. It is a good God's response in truth and justice to all that is wrong in his world and all that is wrong with people made in his image and for his glory. Now listen, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that God's wrath is not a new idea for us in this book of Revelation. We've been exploring it in depth, in fact, through these last 10 chapters of of this book. So we've said lots of things about it. Now today, what I want us to realize is that Chapters 15 and 16 of Revelation are not just showing us fundamental realities of the world out there, which they are showing us, the world at large, 
but they're setting before us a personal choice of eternal significance. And here's the question to present that choice to you. It is this, will you in the end glorify God and enjoy his blessing, or will you curse him and experience his wrath? Not an easy question, but the biggest and most important question you will ever answer. Now, what Revelation 15 to 16 does is it draws together quite a few threads that have been running through the last 12 or so chapters. So sorry if you're just here for the first time today, dropping into the middle of a series. We've been talking at length about these things, and I'm going to draw some of these threads together, um, so you just have to bear with me as we do some of that. This is the final action replay of history between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. And so we see lots of what we've seen before, lots of familiar imagery if we've been working through the book together. But now we see these things with this greater intensity. It's like the, the, the camera is zoomed in and the action is slowed down on this final pass through history. We've talked about Revelation being like an art gallery, haven't we? And, and we're walking around this art gallery. Uh, and the main exhibit of the art gallery is Jesus' insights on life in the world and history. And it's like we spent the last six weeks or so in this one room of this art gallery. And the main exhibit in there is that vision that we saw in Revelation 4 and 5. That's the main big picture, the big exhibit. The throne of God with the lion lamb on it and and all of heaven and all of earth gathered around in worship of Christ who was slain for us. And then we've seen in the following weeks these various other pieces of artwork, these other images in this room of this gallery that kind of emerge from that piece. That's the main piece, and everything else is connected to it in some way. We've seen the seals and the trumpets and the dragon and the baby and the two beasts and and all of this stuff. And today we get to these final two pictures before we leave this room of the gallery next week and kind of go to look at some other things. Now, as, as, as often is the case with, with Revelation, it's just very complex in its structure, and you have to do quite a lot of hard work with that. Let me just try and uh, show you if, you, if you have it open there on page 1,244, uh, Revelation 15, 16, what's going on. So verse 1, John, who, who is, sees these visions, uh, has this vision of this great and marvelous sign. He sees seven angels with these seven last plagues. Then the very next verse, verse 2, he then has this other vision. He sees people basically singing by the sea. Then you go down to verse 5, and he says, after this, I looked. And he has this other vision, but now he's looking back at the angels of the plagues again. So there's only really two visions, but it's like he kind of, he just keeps on jumping from one to the other, flicking between these pictures. You know, like when a friend tells you a long story, it's not often in a a logical order, and certainly not a chronological order. Or if you ever kind of have to interview a witness, you kind of have to get some of the information out of them. And, and it's like, oh, yeah, this happened, and then that happened. Oh, I forgot this, and then what about that? And it's kind of, it, that's the sort of thing that we've got here. But really, we have these two visions in Revelation 15 and 16, and they're from the future of what life could be like for you. And they help us navigate that biggest question of all. Is your life going to culminate in the glory of God or in the wrath of God? Where are you at? And the first option is a life that culminates in the glory of God. I think you learn a lot about a, a culture or a lot about a person by what they sing about, what their songs are. And in many ways, you could say that our songs are the culmination of our lives and what is most important to us. And singing together has always been a really big deal for Christians, probably more than any other religion, more than any other people group, I think. And it's not incidental to the experience of the Christian life that we sing together. It's essential So at the Gate Church, we want to spend time doing that. We want to put energy and focus on singing together on Sundays. It's an important thing 
that, that, that we do when we come together. And as we sing together, we spread the fame and the glory of God. We encourage one another in our faith. We remind ourselves of the, the truth about God. We stir up in our hearts and our souls the, the truth that we know. We build each other's faith up. We, we witness to a watching world. It's such an important aspect of our spiritual life together. Something that we want to highly value in this church. We want to invest ourselves in. We don't want to do it in a way that makes people seem great. We want to do it in a way that shows that God is great. Now, we do that in part. Have you noticed that Revelation is full of songs of God's people? That's a thread that's been going through the book so far. Have you seen it? You know, the, the curtains pulled back for us on heaven a few times in Revelation. And what do we see? We see it's a place of song. We see it's a place of, of party and worship. We're told that continually these heavenly beings, even now today, are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In fact, in that main vision in Revelation 4 and 5, four times, heaven just breaks out into song to the Lamb on the throne and the God on the throne. And then at the end of that vision, at the end of Revelation 5, what happens is that praise of heaven spills out into earth. And so we, we, we read that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea sing to him, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Actually, the Bible says this. This is really cool, right? When we come together, we sing in like, you know, this rubbish kind of building and there's, you know, there's a few of us and you know, someone has to stand next to me and hear me sing. It's not a great experience. The Bible says that when we do that, we're joining in with that worship of heaven. That's the true reality we get to participate in as we worship God together. And then what we've seen is as we've gone through those cycles of history, those action replays, all of them in some way culminate in a song of praise to the Lamb. And it's always from the servants of God gathered around the throne. At the end of the seals in chapter 7, we read that there was this great mixed multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language crying out in a loud voice, worshipping God and, and worshipping the Lamb for his salvation. At the end of the uh, trumpets in chapter 11, we read that 24 elders praise and worship God and they fall on their faces before him. Last week, Johnny took us through chapter 14, and we're all, there we were on Mount Zion, and people bearing the name of God on, 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 on themselves stood singing this new song to the Lamb. And we hear that it sounded like a roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. And in chapter 15, we come to this very same scene again, just from a slightly different angle. Chapter 15, verses 2 to 4, this scene of worship. And actually, it's a scene, we're kind of going back to the future, so it's actually a, a scene of the future, it's the victory song after the war of this age is over. And John here in, in chapter 15 sees that same sea of glass that he saw in Revelation 4, this, this, this sea of glass which we know is in front of the throne of God. And here he says that it's now glowing with the fire of God's perfection and righteousness and holiness. But as before, it's still at perfect peace. And standing by this sea, Verse 2, those who are victorious over the beast and over his image and over the number of his name. And as they stand by the sea, the worship band strikes up and, uh, and they raise their voices together in worship of God. This is the great culmination of history in praise of the Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ. The one who sits on the throne and his praise rings out from people right across the world and right down through history. 
This is a great and a brilliant vision of the end of the world as we know it. You see, God's people are, and they always have been, and they always will be, a people of song. We will always sing. That is always a correct and a proper response to the salvation of God. It's a correct and proper response to his acts through history. And so that song at the end of history, which we read about here in Revelation 15, is actually an ancient song that's been sung throughout history. Moses and Miriam first wrote it way back in the beginning, near the beginning of the Bible, Exodus 15, by the Red Sea, and they were praising God for the salvation he had given to his people in that day and that age, rescuing them from their enemies there. And basically that song has been on repeat in the lips of God's people throughout history. Because it is the story of God's people. God has given us victory over our enemies. God has delivered us. God is a just God. God has great love for us. God is powerful to save. It's always the same. So, so these lyrics of this song here, Revelation 15, they're like, this, um, they're like a mixtape of a load of songs throughout the Bible, basically, kind of mashed up together. These songs of God's great and marvellous deeds, of his truth and his justice, of God's righteous acts. Uh, songs, uh, it's a song that respects God in loving fear, that trembles before him and yet worships him. A song that acknowledges God's holiness, his otherness, his difference to us. And that he alone is, has the right and he alone is worthy of all of our worship and our praise. It's a song that brings him glory. Crying out, you alone, O God, are worthy of all honor and praise and blessing. Now, I know it does not always feel like it to us. I know it does not always feel like it to me. If I'm honest with you, it hasn't particularly felt like it to me so far this morning. I haven't arrived here with God's praises just tumbling out of my heart and my mouth. But God's people are a singing people and we always, always, always have something to sing about. Whatever the circumstances around you, whatever the situation of your life, we have a lamb who was slain for our sins. We have a God who today is on the throne over all things. We have the hope of heaven in our hearts. We have the freedom of forgiveness for everything that's happened and we've done. We have a God whose deeds are great and marvelous. We have the king of the nations who is our father. We have the shepherd of our souls. We have resurrection power instilled in our life by the spirit of God who lives in us. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have breath in our lungs and right now we have blood pumping pumping through our veins. And all of it is for his glory. Every little bit of it. And all of it is to cause us to break out into song. Whatever's going on. He alone is worthy of our praise and our worship and our adoration and our loving devotion. He alone is worthy of your musical gifting if you have it. He alone is worthy of our voices raised up and he alone is worthy of all the glory forevermore. And Revelation shows us it again and again as just a thread of the song of God's people. It is the only appropriate response to the Lamb who was slain. It's the only appropriate response to Jesus Christ and the God who was and is and is to come. So listen, what else can we do now with that in mind, other than pause for a moment for this sermon? We're going to do a two-parter. I'm going to come back in a bit. But right now, we're going to join in that song of heaven. 
Yeah, John, you can come up and, and, and start to get ready. This is the song that God's people have sung through millennia. This today is being sung. We were praying about it earlier. It's just wonderful, this thought. Across the world today, people are singing this, uh, these songs in so many different languages and in so many different cultures and musical styles. This is the song of heaven this morning. And it's going to be our song for eternity. So let's praise and worship him together. And please, let's sing like we mean it, if you mean it. If you're not used to singing, please just feel free to just kind of look at the words, think about it, you know. Uh, you, you don't have to sing along. But if you do know and love Christ, then let's sing like we mean it. Let's stand together and sing. So that's the first option. Lives that culminate in the glory of God. The second option is this. Lives that culminate in the wrath of God. In John, uh, sorry, in Revelation 15, verse 5, John sees into the heavenly temple, which opens up before him. And, and we, as we read about his vision, he tells us that the temple is filled with the smoke, of the, uh, smoke from the glory of God and of his power. Smoke throughout the Bible is this imagery of the awesome and holy presence of God that's depicted in this kind of cloud of, uh, of God's presence. And John here is peering into the holiest of holy places, this inner sanctuary of heaven, the place that we read no one can enter. It's also called the tabernacle of the covenant law. You see, because God's holiness and God's judgments and God's standards, which we're about to explore now, they're not arbitrary, but they're derived from the very character and nature of God himself. And coming out of this place of perfect holiness, we read our seven angels. And these angels are dressed in the get-up of good guys. They're like mini Christ sent out to do his work. Their task is holy and their errand is righteous. And they're given these golden bowls. And these bowls are filled with the wrath of the God who lives forever and ever. And they're told to go and pour them out on the earth. As these seven bowls are poured out in chapter 16... uh, They are described as plagues, and as we read them, they sound very much to us like a remake of the plagues of Egypt, which are a very famous story from the Bible. Well, there's this great showdown between Pharaoh and the God of Israel, and we read about sores and waters turning to blood and frogs and darkness and these sorts of things. And and here in Revelation 15 and 16, the purpose is the same as it was in Exodus. It is to call people out who are living in God's world as if he is not there. To call those people out and to call them back. And he does that by reminding people and reminding us that he alone is God and he will uphold the cause of his people. You see, God's presence drawing near from this holy place in heaven is a fearful thing for those who are in rebellion against this God. At the same time, it's a wonderful thing for those who know him as a loving father. But it is a fearful thing for those who are in rebellion against their creator. This, this room of the, the Revelation Gallery we've been in for the last five or six weeks, we've seen lots of, of God's display, um, wrath on display in history, as, 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 as I've said. And, and just remember that it all emerges from that vision in Revelation 4 and 5, that big piece in, in, in that room, the central vision, the lamb who was slain and with his blood purchased people from every tribe and every uh, race and every, every language and people and nation. 
This one who is the praise and worship of heaven, who has paid the price for, for me and for you to know this God and to be forgiven and to know life and freedom. And so it is from, from this one and from that place that, that all of this comes. These are not the acts of an uncaring and out of control and distant God, as people so often accuse him of being. But this is the fierce love of a father that is expressed as a right and good anger at all evil and everything that destroys true life. Now it is true, this is a hard pill to swallow. Whenever I come back to this reality uh, in in my own heart and life or or in preaching like this, I feel a knot in my stomach. It's agonizing. And yet that's how we're supposed to feel. And just because we don't always like it, it doesn't mean it's untrue. In fact, I was talking with someone in the church recently about about hell, which is the ultimate reality of God's wrath being revealed. And they said they find it really hard to believe in. And yet the alternatives are even more unthinkable. A whole lot worse. In the end, no sense of final justice. No sense of good overcoming evil. No sense of all that is wrong actually being dealt with. And so this, this final pass-through in these seven bowls, as I said, it draws together a number of threads for us, and they help, they help us navigate this. And, and, and the first thread that I want us to see, which has run right through the previous chapters, is this is a promise um, of the culmination and the completion of God's wrath. See, in verse 1 of chapter 15, these are called the seven last plagues. Not because they happen last in time or near the end of history, but this last vision that John sees as he's getting his history lesson from Jesus. And with this vision, God's wrath is completed. And so in verse 17 of chapter 16, God declares from his throne, it is done. And so in a world where justice and um, uh, justice is partially and imperfectly done, as we know it is in our experience... God makes it clear that in the end, justice will be done, fully and completely. And so what that means in chapter 16 is everyone and everything is affected by these bowls of wrath. They they affect the land and the sea and the fresh waters and the sun and the powers and principalities and and the air. And and also, whereas the seals affected one in four, the trumpets affected one in three. And we said, look, that's a partiality to this. It's not complete, it's not total. The seven thunders in chapter 10, which were sealed up, presumably would have affected one in two. We're now here, the the bowls affect one in one. This is the totality and the fullness of God's wrath in earth. It's the culmination of this. And in fact, at the end, the entire world unravels with this mighty earthquake in in the seventh bowl, which is verse 17 and following. And even this earthquake itself has been a thread, a repeating pattern that we've seen. It's been growing throughout the book. And here we see it reach its culmination, and it represents this intensification of the perspective we get here. So the first time we read of thunder and lightning, it's in chapter 4, coming from the throne. At the end of the seals in chapter 8, we read again of thunder and lightning, but it's, it's, it's more intense with an earthquake. The end of ch- the trumpets in chapter 11 is even more intense with a severe hailstorm added to describe what is coming from God's throne and the Ark of the Covenant. And then here in uh, verse 18 of chapter 16, the same events we come to again, the culmination of history, but this time it's an earthquake that is so severe that there is none other like it. 
These things have been intensifying as we've been going through the book. And as we've watched these action replays of history, we've seen it. But here is the final word on the matter. You see, God's judgment is great, and and we read that he remembers Babylon. And and here Babylon is is just a a picture in in, in the Bible, particularly in Revelation, of of the whole of the world and the whole of human life opposed to God and rejecting him and, and having no space and time for him. And he remembers Babylon, and he gives her the cup filled with the fury of his wrath. And as he does so, the whole physical world just implodes Because without God, in the end, there is no life. In fact, without God, there is nothing. And so this depicts the complete and the final outpouring of God's wrath against all evil, all moral wrong, all injustice, and all sin. This is God in the process of righting all wrongs, bringing justice to all situations, not a piecemeal and occasional justice, not not a partial justice, but a perfect and complete Justice, And so no person who is responsible for evil will escape this justice other than through Christ. Now, I know it's terrifying. And it's meant to be. God knows that we, as those who are limited in our knowledge, limited in our wisdom, and limited in our purity, are prone to question and doubt his goodness and justice in light of this. And so we have some things here, some threads that have been following through and are drawn together here that are to reassure us this is the action, this action of God in the world is just. This is right and true. Hear what the third angel says in verse 5 of chapter 16. You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. The Eternal and the Holy One is just in his judgments. And that is why... The song that we just saw in in Revelation 15, his people sing of his great and marvellous deeds, of his just and his true ways, of his righteous acts. It's not only his salvation that leads us to sing, of course it does, but it's also this, his justice and his judgment and his goodness that leads us to sing. God's kingdom is one that is built on justice and in the end he will ensure that justice is done in the world. Well, listen, as as with all these things, it's a matter of perspective. And and just think about justice and how keenly we long for it or or fail to long for it. It's a matter of of perspective. In in fact, wouldn't you say that those who are indifferent or cold-hearted about justice and about evil perpetrators to get in the way of what they do and victims not being um, honoured and exonerated and all the rest... If, if, if someone's just indifferent or doesn't care about that, we would say they are less good and they are less moral, wouldn't we? And it is those who have a deeper appreciation and a deeper love for the goodness and the value of any victim of evil that most deeply and most profoundly cry out and long for ultimate justice in the end. It's why the family of, of, of these victims, of these murder victims this year, who, who were so brutally killed, they yearn for justice, I don't doubt, so much more deeply than me. Because they knew up close and personal the worth and the beauty of those they have lost. In a way that's impossible for me to know because I never got to know them. Well, so too with God. The depth of his revulsion to evil 
and how he responds to it. It shows not only his great love for us, but how highly he values us. He's not okay with it. But also, it applies the other way. It is our level of appreciation and love for God which will determine how much we yearn for justice in God's world. A world which has been ruined by creatures made in his image for his glory. It's how much we value and love him will cause us to share his heart. See, here's the final thread that I want us to see uh, is drawn together here, and it's all about our response to these things. So you want to know what the greatest injustice of all is in this world? It's that people live in God's world, made for his glory, and live as if he isn't there. That's the most unjust thing. That is absolutely outrageous that we would reject our loving creator, the God who was and is and is to come, the God who is the source of all life, the God who eagerly desires for all people, the Bible says, to know him and to love him and to experience life in him and experience life that he has made for us and not only to reject him but to hate him and the claims he makes on our lives and to push him far away from us. Did you see it as as Johnny read it? In in verse 9 of chapter 16 with the fourth bowl, people cursed God's name. And they refused to repent and glorify him. They dig their heels in in their rebellion and they stay entrenched. In the fifth bowl, again, they curse God and they refuse to to repent. In fact, in the sixth bowl, the, the kings and the peoples of the world are led astray by this unholy trinity that we've seen in recent, recent weeks of the dragon and the beast. And the peoples of the world arrange themselves in opposition to God and they come to this great ancient battleground which here is renamed Armageddon, fully armoured up and ready to have a go at God, both, both barrels. What a way to treat God. And yet every bit of suffering and pain, every bit of wrath is given so that people's hearts may be softened, so that their minds may be stirred and so they might turn back to the God who designed them, who loves them, and who made them for his glory. See, the meaning and purpose of life is the glory of God. That's what you've been made for. It's what I've been made for. And he's set things up. It's not... Him being egotistical about it, he set things up so that that is good for us. That's where our life finds it, its purpose and its meaning, its value and its goodness and, and its flourishing. But verse 21 tells us that history will end with those who are still cursing God, showing him the finger. And it might be out loud and obvious, as it is with some. It might be just very polite and and subtle and very British. But it's people refusing God, turning their back on him, ignoring his glory and greatness, having nothing to do with him. And so that's why these verses, these chapters are so personal for us. Because they they, they put the question before us as, uh, as, as this, what will your response be on that day? And you know what your response will be on that day because it's the response that you're making today. Verse 15 in the middle there is this little quote, is a loving warning, we are to be ready for his coming. This is the coming of Christ, which could be any time. He'll come like a thief in the night. He could come today. 
And so we're told, stay spiritually awake, be clothed in his righteousness and and the armor of God he has given us. Stand your spiritual ground in Christ and be ready. See, life is a choice. And in the end, it's a very simple choice. There are two types of people. Those who rebel against Christ and reject him, effectively curse him, and so experience his wrath. And those who recognize who he is, who love him, who turn back to him, who put their faith in him and seek his forgiveness by his blood shed on the cross for our very many failings and sins. And so those who worship him, who love him, who adore him, and so bring him glory. The question that I want each of us to ask is, what choice are you making today? What choice are you making today? Let's pray. holy God who lives forever who alone is righteous and good and true in all things perfect in wisdom perfect in purity perfect in knowledge you see into the depths of each of our hearts today you know our life story is up to this point thank you for putting before us this choice Thank you for honoring the dignity and the value of our agency as those made in your image. I pray by faith you would move us to choose wisely and then to stand firm in that choice. For those who know you, would you keep us standing firm, ready and awake and alert, persevering to the end, Lord, thank you for your justice, but it is a terrifying thing. Thank you that the justice comes from a God who is love. A God who has offered salvation and offers it freely to us today, if only we'll take hold of it. Please give us the gift of faith that we need to receive your salvation and eternal life. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.